Hi, this is Jason Garrett from Daily Dose of Hoops. You're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Good evening, Michael. How are you doing tonight? I'm hanging in there, Tommy. It's been a long season. A lot of ups and downs, and uh, we're going to bring it to a wrap tonight. Now, you know, we did a preview on the season, and we kind of touched player by player, but we're going to be here forever. We could talk about these guys till the day's over. But instead of doing it that way, Mike, I think we should do it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Down for that. But you know what? Since it was a positive ending to this season, we're going to do it in reverse. So we're going to do the ugly, the bad, and the good. So we're, we're going to end on a positive. Uh, you, you're going to change your stripes going into the new year. I like I, this. I, I'm looking at my glass right now, Mike, and it looks half full. So let's go from there. Well, mine's half empty because my beer is almost gone. So let's go. <laughs> so this pains me to say, Mike, but my first point on the ugly is my man, Torian Thompson. How can he I, not be? How I spent, be? Well, I spent most of the season being somewhat of a Torian Thompson apologist. You know that. But I can't argue with the results. It just wasn't a good season for the guy. It's confusing. It's disappointing. We've asked many guests that have come on the podcast what their take was and we just get kind of blank answers it's like i don't know i, I can't put my finger on it i i think that's the way we're ending the season is we just really don't know what went sideways in his development we don't know if it dates back to his time at syracuse we don't know if it's the one year transitioning maybe it's a philosophical situation with how he fits into the into the offense i i don't know I really don't. Well, Mike, we've had good transfers in the past. We've had Sterling Gibbs. We've had Quincy and McKnight this year. We have uh, Teague. You know, there is a lot of positives out there when we have these transfers. But conversely, you have the bad. I mean, we had Brian Oliver out of Georgia Tech early in the Willard regime. I mean, he had he had the talent. You could see it, but he never put it together on the floor. He ended up in some fisticuffs against Rutgers. Uh, you had Javon Thomas. who What? Did, did he step on the floor for a few games? He was supposed to be this phenomenal defensive stopper. We had Braden Anderson who was coming back from Fresno State uh, on the law school grad transfer kind of situation. That didn't really work out. I know it was a nice story that he got his degree, but he didn't contribute on the on the basketball court. What ends up happening is you, en- you end up with a result like Thompson produced, similar to these other guys, where they weren't expected to just be a throw-in piece to the roster. We expected a lot from Thompson. We expected a lot from some of these other guys too. And when you miss that badly on a transfer, for whatever the reason was, you're going to you're gonna feel like you're going to have a big setback. And somehow the, the team overcame us missing what we perceived to be our second best scorer for the entire season, essentially. You know, and a lot of people have been questioning whether he's going to be back on the roster next year. Personally, I think he comes back. I think he plays one more year with us. I don't see him transferring because he's not going to sit out another year. And there's one thing, that tantalizing thing that's going to keep him back. It's potential, Mike. The kid's got potential. We saw it in the Kentucky game. We saw his freshman year at Syracuse. He might be able to put it together. There's no doubt the talent is there, but sometimes 
if you're in the doghouse or you just don't see eye eye with the coach, you just don't end up having the chemistry that allows that talent to come out. He does not fit well in the system that Willard rolls out defensively. He's lost. You know, we saw it in the first couple games. We saw guys grabbing him by the jersey and saying, get in position. We're like, all right, he's got to work through those issues. It, it never really changed throughout the course of the year. We saw the flashes in the Kentucky game. I mean, that's going to go down as one of the greatest games I've ever seen as a Seton Hall fan. And he's right at the epicenter of it all. So at least he's going to have his, his moment in blue. But if you ask me, I'm not pushing him out the door. But I don't think he comes back. I think he's going to want a fresh start. It's I don't think he sits out another year and goes to the program. Maybe he goes and plays professionally. Maybe he goes to a D2 level. You hear all these rumors. There's guys coming in next year that are going to play. Ike's going to play. Uh, Samuel got recruited. Tyree Samuel plays the four. Maybe more of a three. But these are all spots that are going to take minutes away for Thompson could fit in. So if he doesn't feel like there's a fit, why hang around to play five minutes, ten minutes a game? Hey, coming up next in our ugly section, what I call the Seton Hall slide. And I just want to point out mike you heard it here first during our out of conference uh, recap podcast when we were discussing how many wins the team were gonna was gonna have at the end of the season i said we're gonna go through the seton hall slide we do it every year and this year was no exception here was my issue with this year i thought this team played better defense and defense travels defense is consistent on a night-to-night basis and in the stretch that we had the slide we had two depaul games so I, i know you were always you know anxious that it was going to rear its ugly head and, and it did but there were pieces in place that said all right this team is going to be over- overcome that or they're not going to get caught in that trap so i think that's where the frustration came in is it you know what were the deep-rooted issues that keeps on having this you know surface year in and year out now let's keep this in mind when we go to other sections two losses to depaul during that time period and one loss to providence keep those three games in mind when we get to other sections all right and then finally it's like we're beating that drum again the shavar Reynolds experiment Mike you can't let it go now well it, it it wasn't pretty he had his moment he had his moment when he hit the big shot against St. John's it was wonderful it is something that he should remember forever all right so let's do this you, you told me before we came into this podcast we're going to do this piece and we're going to base our opinions on the expectation coming into the season as to what falls into which segment so let's put Shavar into that kind of context did we agree that maybe he should go from walk-on to scholarship player at that's up for debate but the point was coming into the season I still had a very low ceiling for what I expected out of Shavar Reynolds and I would have never put anywhere on that list of expectations hitting a game-winning shot versus a Big East opponent okay and he did that right but as a scholarship player you have a certain amount of expectations that get put on you as a player who plays good number of minutes you have expectations here's his shooting split Mike 0.262 that would be 26% by the way 0.156 and then a robust 0.857 from the foul line 85% so field goal percentage three point percentage foul shooting percentage I, I'm not defending Shavar I'm not but I'm not gonna beg on him for the entire season and say hey you suck so bad you need to be off the team that, that should not be the message here i am not saying he needs to go off the team mike i'm saying that you don't give this kid a scholarship i have a buddy who made a good point when we talk on the side outside of the podcast and he says look powell was gonna get 35 minutes plus on this roster it's just it's the way it was constituted you needed his offense you needed him on the floor the entire time so whoever was going to back up miles powell was going to maybe get five minutes and on an off night maybe they're going to get 10 so that there's a reason why eron gordon uh transfers out because he didn't want to play that role in his junior season and i don't think you can recruit somebody else with shavar's scholarship this season to accept that role of essentially five minutes a game a guy like shavar 
for his shortcomings or not, he accepts his role on the team for playing that backup position to Powell as limited as it is. And I'll, let me finish this point. I know where your frustration is. If you're on the floor for the five minutes, you just don't want to feel on the offensive side of the floor that we're playing four against five. But that's not what we got, Mike. He started a game, Mike. He started at point. He was in there to back the point up. Anthony Nelson lost minutes here, Mike. We got a lot, it, to, it we got a lot not... to cover. We got a lot to cover. And we beat this up. I, I just, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going right, to do it We're again. moving on. We're moving on. That's all we saw with the ugly. Now let's get to the bad all right hit me this should not be construed as a comment on their overall play but the inconsistent play from the sophomores was pretty bad it's a fair point because and this goes back to the ugly we did not get that contribution from thompson that we were expecting put whatever numbers in 15 and 8 15 and 6 we expect a double digit scoring so all of a sudden you don't have thompson the burden of responsibility shifts to other players on the team and it, the expectation was that one of these two sophomores was going to step up to be the third piece of the puzzle offensively and now we needed both of them to be two and three on a night in and night out basis and because we were successful and we wanted to keep winning you had to look to the to those two guys to do so so in their inconsistency it, it's a fair criticism and it's something that we want to see get better going going into next season but you, you can't just run them over with a bus either no not at all they both had their moments to shine now miles kale played some of his better games against the top competition he had a great game against kentucky he did really well against maryland and creighton and in that win against nova he put in 19 himself and shot i believe six of eight from three that's so right he had his moments even sandro where i i bagged on him for a long part of the season where i said a lot of his good games were against lower type opponents but he had a really good game against at creighton and he had a really good game in a win against nova he had a 12 and 18 game he was pulling a uh, angel delgado if you will, on Nova. But they need to be more consistent, and that's what we need to see. There's parts of the games that they need to work on. I mean, people don't realize that as, as poorly as we shot from three as a team, and Kale got off to a a slow start shooting the three as well. He led the team at 37.8%. It's not a bad number. It's pretty respectable. So as a sophomore, he, he showed more confidence in his ability to look for the three, step into the three the second half of the season. I think that number is going to progress. What I'd like to see is him not shoot 41% from the floor. I want him to see him be more confident attacking the basket, get out on the break, use his athleticism. As you say, throw down a dunk and get the crowd into it. Um, <laughs> I just want to see him have more confidence because I think when he is not thinking on the basketball court, he lets the game come to him he's a night and day player the same goes for sandro right you, you, you joke and say he's got the, the the mamu shrug when he's when he's not shrugging and he's believing in his ability on a certain night once again two different players yeah mamu actually had stretches of games where he looked fantastic and then he kind of disappeared in the same game the game against walford the first five minutes of that game he was literally everywhere shooting rebounding leading the fast break it was great he has he, he was showing that potential that everybody's giving him this credit to be all world so you got to give him credit because he no. went through the sophomore slump where he would he had a stretch of games where he couldn't figure it out he was finding himself on the bench i uh, couldn't couldn't get his three-point shot going sometimes when a sophomore gets in a funk that that's it for the the rest of the season at times and he bounced back with the nova game that you mentioned and that, that that's the crux to put us into the tournament i mean it was great that we got the, the marquette game where miles powell goes nuts but 
we had to back it up with another game against Nova, and you had Kale, as you mentioned, 19. Mamu comes out with a 12 and a career-high 18 rebounds and a, you know, turn-back-the-clock Delgado performance. And both of those guys could have gone into the shell, and they stepped up in the biggest moment of the season. The opposite side of the, the spectrum here is when you have Sandro, nine games scoring five or less. If I need him to be my second or my third leading scorer on a consistent basis, that's one-third of the season where he only scores like two buckets in a game. I, I get the frustration from the fan base saying, hey, if this kid could take it to the next level, we got a shot to be something special. But he, but he did to an extent. So his freshman year, he plays 10 minutes a game. He played 30 minutes a game this year. It's a big step. And as people like to point out, Sandro's a young sophomore. He's 19 years old. He didn't do a year of prep. He's not 23 years old coming off of a red shirt or anything like that. And his numbers progressed. So to go from two and a half points a game to, to nine points a game, two rebounds a game to almost eight rebounds a game and to block almost a shot and a half. And he passes the ball well for a big guy. Once in a while, it's on the break. Sometimes it's on the high-low. He almost had two assists a game. He's a sophomore. I'm not saying those numbers are going to double again, but if those numbers show progression and the same for Kale, there's a lot to be excited about with those two guys. You just want to see the inconsistency go away. And moving on with the final bad point. While we saw lots of good things from Willard, his rotational decisions drive me up a wall. Where do you want to start? Because he, he's got like multiple components of his substitutions and rotation that kind of irked me throughout the year. And we, we were very critical and we'll do it one more time. But where do you want to start? We're going to start with the hockey substitutions. Your favorite. You know, it drives me crazy when he does finally put in the young guys to get them to get some game time. He puts four of them in at the same time with nobody to kind of settle that offense down. So you'll end up getting a Jared Roden. You'll get a Shavar, a Nelson, a Gill, and a Thompson at the floor all together. Or you'll have four of those guys with the starter. And it's it's hard to get a rhythm because now you're asking way too much of the young kids. Our offense has been pretty stagnant to begin with. So now you put in all these players that are still trying to find themselves on the roster, you know, in general. And now you're asking them to burden the or shoulder the burden of either stepping on the throat of another opponent as we're trying to put them away or try to stem the tide if the other team's going on a run. They don't find the ability to kind of get their feet wet as they come into the game. I'd like it to be one or two at a time, mix them in with Powell, mix them in with Sandro. And then once again, like you said, come back with a couple other guys, but bring back some of the starters. It, you see it on a lot of other teams and Willard likes to do the hockey substitution. I know we're 10 deep. I don't think we're equally 10 deep. No. And another thing that drives me crazy is pulling out the player that's doing well and then never going back to him again. We saw it with Anthony Nelson. I think in the Warford game, he had a really decent first half. He didn't sniff the floor in the second half. And and this that's just an example. We've seen that happen where he's got someone playing well, and then they just get to the bench and they never come back in. At least he didn't do it with Powell this year. <laughs> I, I mean, there were some times where Powell was like, you know, white hot, and I was afraid he was going to pull him out, and he let him go for a solid 10, 12 minutes, and he put in some you know crazy performances here. But it wasn't about Powell. It was about getting the younger guys to continue to build upon their confidence. So when, like you said, when a Nelson's having a good game, you know, let the kid have a complete game, not just one half. That's just one example. He, he does that with a lot of guys. Another thing that was driving me crazy was kind of getting a mad scientist feel to him where he was switching starters based on a matchup or a feeling or or something or other. I mean, we saw starts from Gill. We saw starts a start from Brody. We saw a start from Shavar. And none of this seemed all that well thought out, to be honest with you, Mike. I know why he does it. He's got people like you in his ear going, here's a swoon. Got to break the swoon. What are you going to do, Kevin? What do you got for me? What's going to change this year? Here's Brody. Here's Gill. 
I'm gonna throw anything, everything but the kitchen sink at you, or including the kitchen sink at you, to try to find something that's gonna work. And I, I think he felt some of the pressure of, hey, the expectations have changed. We got a shot to make the NCAA tournament now, and we, we're going through a funk. What the heck can I do to break it? And he dug deep onto his bench to try that. A couple times it worked. I mean, Gil pulled a couple of rabbits out of his hat and turned games on a dime. But, you know, it, it was nice to get one performance out of Brody. He rolled the dice one too many times there. Well, if he's going to be the mad scientist, explain to me why he's not trying to pull the three-guard set that we were asking for all season long. We're talking about we've got this combo guard action in in Q, which, I mean, that's what he was when he was at Sacred Heart. And, and all of a sudden, you have this a situation where you can pull in an Anthony Nelson, take Miles Powell out to rest him, put Q in there at the two to get him some minutes, and kind of rotate that through. You end up getting Q... Or, excuse me, you end up getting Anthony Nelson some more minutes, but in a comfortable setting where you still have some veteran leadership on the court. I'm a big proponent of the three-guard set. I, I like when Villanova goes four-guard set. It's very successful nowadays. Stretch the floor, shoot the three. We don't shoot the three well as a team. I think that's part of the hindrance of why he doesn't go to it. He also didn't have the confidence in Nelson to play defense. I think Nelson progressed and maybe proved him wrong a little bit towards the end of the year, but if you don't think that Nelson's going to play good D at the point and you want to put Nelson, Q, and Powell all on the floor at the same time, you forget that Q and Miles are on the smaller side, you know, defensively. Not that they're bad defensive players, but you're giving up a lot of size if the other team has a athletic, you know, three with some height. Powell 6'2". What's Q? Is Q six foot, six one? I mean, who's who's matching up against the other team's small forward? Well, you could even add Kale in that mix too to get a little more height, but none of that was happening. So it's just it's just odd that if you're a mad scientist and you're not trying these kind of rotations with proven players. So all right, we've harped on the negative enough. Let's talk about the good. My Mike, Quincy McKnight had to have been a revelation to everybody. No one should have been expecting what he brought to the table. This is no disrespect to the NEC, but the NEC is a low major Division One conference. They're, they're 16 seed, whoever comes out of that conference. So everyone's like, oh, 18 points a game. You got to be a baller if you can put in 18 points a game. And everyone said level of competition. So I think Q far exceeded the expectations where Thompson absolutely failed. So I think we kind of balanced out there. I didn't think we were going to get anything from Q relative to what we got. He locked down the other team's best guard night in, night out. Marcus Howard, who was Biggie's player of the season, did not have a single good game against us. Yeah, and Q, yeah, he had a good first half, but Q stepped up and shut him down in the second half of the first game. Uh, the game is two halves, right, Mike? This is correct. Okay. He also did a real wonderful job on Ponds in the first game against St. John's. He was in discussion for de for the Defensive Player of the Year all season long. We can go on and on. He had probably like you know ten games where he shut down the opposing opponents. You know, number one offensive threat in the backcourt. And made him look silly. We can keep going and going. Q's D was impressive. And on, on top of that, he got a bad rap for what he did at the point guard position. And that's just not fair because he played an average to above average point guard. We've been kind of spoiled over the years. Maybe not during the Kevin Willard regime, but we've been spoiled over the years in having elite point guards run the show. And you see, even watching other teams across the country, when you have a dominant point guard at that position, the, the team plays at a different level. So we saw the team get really good. We saw Q go through some struggles. And then we kind of beat him up for it but there was a game that he had like nine assists in one game against georgetown it was georgetown thank you how can you be how can you be down on a guy when he would come up with a game like that he just he just wasn't consistent at it as because he's not a true point guard not as much of a revelation as q was i think romero gill deserves a little consideration here mike you shouldn't <laughs> laugh the, the guy the guy earned it he earned it we 
at best, we thought he was going to be five fouls in the mode of Rashid Anthony, come in for four minutes a game, give up those five fouls, and then go sit back down to give Mamu or, or Mike a breath. You got me on. You got me on tape in the very first podcast that we did. I didn't even hesitate. I was like five fouls. I, I didn't say, disagree though. Five fouls. There was no disagreeing, and yet he was instrumental in turning around certain games at Maryland. He changed the demeanor of that game at Xavier. At St. John's, he played a decent game, and against Marquette. We won three of those games. We don't even have a shot to make the, the rally in the St. John's game at the Garden without his effort in the second half. And that was a matchup at St. John's and Marquette specifically where they're like, oh, these these guys, these guys are quick. You know, they're, they're going to stretch the floor on you. He can't be on the floor. Gil got into the flow of the game and he felt comfortable. You, look, you don't want him playing out by the three-point line. But when he found his groove and got into the game, he was a game changer. There, there's different ways to use him. And when we got into a rhythm that suited his, his you know, his ability to protect the rim, Gil's, Gil's a legit player on this team that can make a difference. I said five fouls and we just, we highlighted three road games and a top 25 opponent in which he helped us win ball games. Wow. And the length was just crazy to watch. We haven't had... Don't say it. Don't say it. We haven't had a guy like that. I, I, when's the last time we had a guy... Don't say it. That was a legit 7-2, Mike. You just ended the gill piece. Move on. <laughs> and, you know, when they were allowed to play, the freshmen stepped up big. I like Roden. I, I like Nelson. I, I think there's a lot of high-ceiling potential for both of them. They took time to grow into, you know, their roles on the team to get some confidence. But Roden played some big minutes on the back end of the Big East schedule, especially the tournament games. His last four games of the Big East regular season, he averaged nine points a game. Did you realize that? It was impressive. I mean, and he shot the ball better at the end. And in the open mic segment during the Butler game, LeVar Jordan's like, does he only hit him against us? I think he was like <laughs> two of 20 at that point. But he ended the season in that same four-game stretch, six of 13. He was putting him up with confidence. And, and he boards. I mean, I think he's a little undersized for what Willard was using him. I mean, he, people don't realize he was playing the four most of that time. And he averaged over four rebounds a game over his last eight. That's pretty solid. And let's not forget the one great game Bruiser Brody had for us against Butler. The great game. He had like four points, six rebounds, a couple blocks. He was instrumental in settling down that game for us to win. He just didn't back it up with a, a good start against DePaul a couple weeks later. It is what it is. I, I didn't even expect Brody to step on the court. I just didn't think he fit in the rotation. I just thought his game was a little bit too raw. So for him to come in and once again be a specific leader in winning a game, huge positive. I, I want to focus more on Anthony Nelson because his... His run in the Big East tournament gives me more excitement for last year than anybody else in the freshman group. We've been saying this from the beginning. We keep saying it. He's an LCP favorite. We like the way he handles the ball. He's got a good feel for the game. He showed he had a really quick first step. And he was on the floor in some really important games, Mike. I mean, he, he took over good sections of the game in the Big East tournament. He ended the game in overtime against Kentucky. He, he played some good minutes in the first half in the NCAA game. He should have played more in the second half. I'm comfortable. Maybe maybe his defense improved in practice towards the second half of the season, and we didn't get a chance to see that. Who, who knows what the reason was, but after Shavar got that start at Georgetown and it didn't work out, you know, Willard said, all right, let, let me give it a shot. I don't know if that was the trigger. I don't know if Nelson actually earned the minutes, but when he got on the floor, he looked like he was playing solid D. You know, you, you got to expect that kind of stuff from freshmen. I mean, they're going to have their struggles, but you could have gotten a lot out of him on the offensive side, even if he was struggling defensively. I just want to see Willard use his players not only for the moment at hand, but also to have the foresight for what, what's coming down the road. You knew that the keys are going to be handed over to Nelson at some point, whether it's next year, two years from now. We need a true point guard running the offense. Everyone admits this is the closest thing to a true point guard since 
God knows who. I mean, everyone wants to say Isaiah. Isaiah wasn't a true point guard. No. This goes all the way back to Jordan Theodore. That's, that's a seven-year stretch. First homegrown point guard like that, Right, sure. so uh, if he, we knew he was going to have some growing pains. The problem is the success of the team being ahead of the curve didn't give Willard enough, you know, n- enough of a leash to let him go into a game and make those mistakes because we needed to win those games. But I still would have liked to see in certain moments have those growing pains be a part of the process so that we wouldn't have to wait till the Big East Championship game for Nelson the, to put in 12 points and steal the show. The next person we're going to see him like it's a cop out here but i don't think anyone expected what we got out of miles powell this year i mean he had to have exceeded everyone's expectations with this season we knew he was going to be good did you think he was going to be this good no he was crazy good he was unworldly good he i'm waiting for the all-american votes to come out he's got to be on one of the teams doesn't he i I think he's gonna get snubbed but he's gonna get snubbed because this is like the most valuable player award where if you're not on one of those teams that had a big run you're not gonna be there i'm i'm being biased here i mean once again we didn't win the big east regular season we didn't go deep in the ncaa tournament but it's not like we were a basement of the big east you know, we make the dance we're top three we're in the big east finals of the, of the big east tournament he, he was on the big stage a lot and he sh- he shined on the big stage his numbers I mean, they speak for themselves. I mean, just indulge me for a minute here or two because the, the, the rap sheet just goes on for miles and miles. No pun intended. Uh, he was second in the Big East in scoring at 23 a game. That was t- good for 12th in the nation as well. He had 784 points in a season, which is the most in the modern Big East era by a pirate. He broke Terry DeHare's record. He had two steals per game at second in the Big East. He had 107 uh, made three-pointers, second in the Big East, 84% from the line, fourth overall. He put up a 40-point game at Grand Canyon. He had eight games of 30 plus, which we were seven and one, and 15 games of 25 plus, where we were 11 and four. So to put that into context, in the games that he did not score more than 25, we were below 500, nine and 10. I mean, he put them on his back night in and night out when everybody in the gym knew that that was the game plan and they still couldn't stop him on certain nights. And let's not forget the crazy Big East tournament record uh, of points scored in a single half, Mike, of 29 against uh, Georgetown. I'm telling you, I thought he was going for 50 that night if they didn't take the foot off the uh, gas. It was jaw-dropping. I mean, some of the moments that he had where he got hot, and we've said this over and over again, it was like you're in the NBA-type zone where a guy scores 20-something points in a quarter. His effort was off the chart. Stuff that we have never seen before. And you can even make the same uh, parallel to the Wofford game. He had 27. I was like, oh, he stepped up in, you know, in the NCAA tournament. He scored 23 in 13 minutes. I went back and watched it again. It's like the 17 minute mark down to like four and a half to go when we were still in that ball game and only down a point. 23 in 13 minutes. He had announcers on multiple occasions in different games kind of up out of their chair oohing and on at some of the shots that he made. It was special. I know you had a question about his maturity level and I know you're going to bring up his games against at Providence at St. John's and against Marquette during a Big East tournament but those are the negative examples of it Mike he plays with emotion all the time and sometimes when you run hot you're going to run the off you're going to run the wrong way we're going to start talking more about not what this season was about but you know what's on the horizon it's tough to top what Miles just put on that rap sheet to come back and say you're going to be better the next year I'll I'll sign up for 90% of what he did this year and be be super happy I am going to expect him or ask him in order to take this team to the next level, whether it be a Sweet 16 or challenge for the Big East crown, he's going to have to take his leadership to the next level. And that means regardless of how emotional it's going to get on the court or chippy it's going to get on the court, he's got to be the the one constant for everybody out there. Everyone's going to be gunning for him. 
If they were gunning for him this year, they're going to be gunning for him twice as hard next year. So I don't think it's acceptable to have those three incidents occur anymore going forward. Now, Mike, you're going to be surprised with my final point here, but I think we've got to get a little standing ovation in general for Coach Willard and his his coaching prowess this year. He did a phenomenal job navigating a young team with only one proving score through a tough out-of-conference schedule. I think he thought he was going to have a better class recruiting-wise coming in, and he was going to have more of a carryover from the previous group. So I think that schedule was set up not with the intention of this team and to be in place or the depth of this roster. Maybe he thought he was going to get more out of Torian Thompson, right? So he, I, whatever his mindset was, I think he was challenging his team from an out-of-conference perspective based on what he thought his roster was going to be. The minute he realized how young the team was, I think he was a little scared. I think we all were. And, and then we kind of, you know, they put it together. They, they shocked the world a little bit. It starts with that Kentucky game. I mean, the out-of-conference did not get off to a banging start. We lose the St. Louis game at the buzzer. We had a nine-point lead late against Louisville, and we kind of choked that game away down the stretch. There was a lot of criticism that could be placed on Willard in the early parts of the non-conference. But the team put it together. It could come out of that non-conference at 9-3 and three with the big wins. You know what? Kudos to him because that team could have gone into those games against Kentucky and Maryland and been completely overwhelmed with where they were at so far. That credit has to go to the coach to have their heads on right to play the way that they played. And not to mention, after we hit the Seton Hall slide, to pull out that last couple weeks in the Big East schedule was great. I mean, we were not playing well. We went in and we played the two top teams in the in the conference, two ranked teams, and we pulled off two wins to basically stamp our ticket. Okay, so every year you get on Kevin because of the January swoon, you know, the Seton Hall swoon, you want to call it, and it's it's reared its ugly head. It's now happened, what, four or five times in a row? He finds a way to right the ship at the end of the season with big wins when their backs are up against the wall over and over again. You going to give him credit for that? I did give him credit for that. I'd like to see him evolve as a coach, though. There's things that, of course, everybody can improve. We talk about, we've talked about it before. You don't want to stay stagnant. You don't want to be that team that just makes the tournament. You want to make it, you want to be a team that makes the tournament and then may make some noise here or there. So with Kevin, I'd like him to figure out how do I not get the swoon? I want him to figure out how do I get a good offense run? These are things I want to see him to evolve in. So this is kind of like horse racing and a jockey. Does he just like, you know, race his horse too hard out of the gate? And then he feels like, uh oh, I got to ease off of them before I head down the backstretch. And, you know, that philosophy is just not, you want to see him run a more even race? Is that what you're asking for? No, I'm, I, I think he doesn't adjust well in the middle. I think he eventually adjusts, but it takes him a while to figure things out. And it, he's got to be able to see certain patterns. He's got to understand his team a little better. And he's got to stop these things. If we're ever going to make that next step, he's got to stop the swoon a couple games early. Everybody goes through a bad section. I think Nova actually had a three-game losing streak toward the end of the season this year but Jay Wright didn't let that go to a two out of seven game streak he doesn't let that happen and we no can't one, no one was playing golf they got one game we have this year. That, no, we have that happen every year Mike regardless of whether we have four seniors starting or whether we have one senior starting I love how he I love how we're in the evolve. good section we're in the good section by the I'm way it does just, not sound like we're in the good I'm section just bringing up this is things I'd like to see I, I'm I think hey, it's hard to have a tiger change his stripes I think Kevin has identified that he is more of a player's coach. He says that he likes to let the players kind of manage themselves at times. And I think over the course of a long season, his philosophy is I'm not going to Bobby Knight them 
from game one through game 35. It's just, that's not who he is. It's not his style. You and I disagree. We're like, I, I'd like to see him, you know, crack the whip a little more, take accountability. This is my program, but that's not who he is. He's not a, he's not a losing coach. He's got a winning record. He's got four straight trips, but I get it. We're going to say, what's the expectation for next year? And I know we're going to start talking about seeding, right? You're going to be like, well, if I want to get to the second round, I can't be the eight or nine seed all, all the time. And you have to avoid the January swoon if you don't want to be the eight or nine seed. Okay. So Mike, before we get to the expectations for next year, harken back to the beginning of the podcast when we talked about remember those two or three wins that we didn't get against DePaul and against Providence. Okay. Mike, we win two two or three more Big East games this year. Willard's got to be coach of the year now. He was still in the conversation anyway at nine and nine. Well, and what I'm saying is that you win those games you were supposed to win, and all of a sudden the conversation's over. We're just he's just taking it home. What was the record for the team that won the Big East regular season this year? Thirteen and five. Nope. Nova finished at thirteen and five. Okay. When I started the beginning of the season and they got hot, win the first couple, and I said it could happen this year. You laughed at me, and now you're telling me we shouldn't have given away two or three games. Two or three games put us at 12 and six, borderline 13 and five. I told you they were not going to win the Big East going 15 and three, but now all of a sudden you're going just come on, Kevin, get me one or two more, get I, me two or three more. I told you we were go- we were going 10 and eight. We went nine and nine. You give me two more wins, we're at 11 and eight. But you don't dis- 11 and seven. You don't disagree that this team missed out on three or four opportunities, and if they don't miss out on those opportunities, they had a chance to win the Big East regular season or be right there in the mix. Was I, that close? I didn't say that they had a chance to win the Big East. I said they had a chance. I had Kevin had a chance to win the coach of the well, year. I w- Don't project. <laughs> I want to see him be in the running for coach of the year. I want to see this team be in the running for Big East champs. I want to see this team be in the running for a four or five seed so that they have a better shot of getting out of the first round and they have a respectable or favorable matchup, you know, in the round of 32. That's the only way this team is going to get to the Sweet 16. If you, if you're a six or a seven or whatever it is, you're pulling off an upset in the second round. They got to put themselves in a situation where they're the better team or on equal footing in the second round of the NCAA tournament. Okay, Mike. So without thinking of any other teams and what's going to happen, who are they going to lose? What is the expectations for Seton Hall next year? You want me to say, you know, claim right now that they're going to win the Big East regular season? I'm not asking you to claim anything. I'm asking you, where do you think they're going to be? They have to be in the upper third. They just have to. You're telling me I can't think about what's going to happen to other teams, but Shamori Pons has already left. He's already going to the NBA, signing an agent. So St. John's has got to take a big step back. And that big man in the middle, Joey Brunks out of Butler. Stop it. Stop. You were like saving that this entire time, weren't you? Marcus Howard most likely might not be back. So there are two of the the top four teams in the conference. Two of the three best players in the conference are gone. And Powell says he's coming back. We can end up in the same boat as these other guys. And he changes his mind and and the landscape shifts. But if Powell comes back, how are you not putting this team in the top three in the conference? And you're going to say, well, why not number one? Because until somebody knocks Nova off their throne, I don't care who's graduating, who's coming in. They've earned the right to be number one until somebody beats them. Here's what I'm going to say, Mike. We're going to be fighting for the Big East title next year. Oh, oh, you're, you're on board. I'm on board. And you, know, and you know what? I'm going to say this. We're going to Philly and we're winning. You know why, Mike? Do you know why, Mike? Because Sandro's going to step up with another 18 rebounds. Because if not now, Mike, when? Nova's going to have a very young team next year. They have no senior leaders. You look at the last five years for Nova and keep on going back. At the guard play, they've had Booth, they've had Brunson, and they've also had Ryan Archidiacono. They had leadership in the backcourt for a five-year stretch. I don't know who that guy is next year. It's not Javon Quinterly. Or he might not be there next year. I mean, so, I mean once again, so I'm, I'm, I'm just saying you got to give Nova the respect they deserve, but on paper, they're not going to be as strong. If, if not, now when? <laughs>
You want to be the drive for five. If not it's now, it's the drive when. for five, Mike. If not now, when? Well, I, I would like to know, besides what we think, what other people think, because this is kind of a could be a make or break season. If the expectations become this high and we fall short, like some people thought we fell short a couple of years ago, you know, what's the attitude going to be around campus? I, I'm really intrigued for the next guest that we're going to bring on right now. You know, we've had lots of interesting guests this year on the podcast, but this is going to be the first time we had someone from campus. Well, we've always had people from the outside looking in. So I, I know he's not on the team, but to be on campus and have a pulse with the student body, I'm, I'm kind of excited to hear what Tyler has to offer. He covers college football recruiting for 247 Sports. He also covers the New York Jets for Jets Wire, a USA Today website. And he is the sports editor for the Setonian. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Tyler Calavaruso. Tyler, welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live. How are you today? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be on. Uh, thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. So, Tyler, we've had a bunch of folks on this season that had all sorts of different uh, con connections with this team, but we realized we actually hadn't had someone from campus. So that's why we're very excited to have you here. Yeah, we definitely get a different perspective of, you know, everything going on being on campus. So I'm happy to join you guys and bring that perspective. Well, we've definitely had a pleasure of covering this team in our inaugural season from the podcast perspective. You know, two older alumni, you know, going a couple decades back was our perspective. But what, as Tom alluded to, intrigues me is kind of seeing how the season and the team is perceived through the eyes of the newest generation of fans. Right. So the student body and how they kind of get to go through their college experience, forming that initial relationship and potential love affair with the team. So this team had a season of ups and downs where you basically ran the gamut of emotions, but ultimately it left impressions that were very memorable for the fan base. Since the Setonian covers the team and connects with the student body, it, we appreciate you coming on to answer some of the questions about the perspective of the season from the eyes of those people on campus. The start, there really wasn't a lot of buzz. You know, they, we were picked eighth. There wasn't a big presence coming out from a marketing perspective for the team. We even had to rally around and have a big social media push just to get fans to show up to our first big non-conference game against Louisville, which kind of blew my mind. What was the attitude on campus, you know, reflective of this lack of hype? You know, it was a kind of a, a lukewarm feel around the team. You know, you're replacing Kadeen, Angel-ish, Desi, all those guys. Not a lot of people knew what to expect. You know, Miles Powell, great player coming in. Everyone knew that here. But no one knew exactly how he was going to take to being the star of this team. So there was kind of an iffy feeling around this team. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And we saw that as the media. And it was definitely uh, reflected by the students here. And I think, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the social media push for Louisville. I think after losing that St. Louis game at home, you know, that kind of had the students in a bind. They really weren't sure what this team was going to be at that point. And the fact that, it, you know, it took, a real big social media push to get people to show up. It kind of caught me by surprise just because, you know, one loss is not the end of the world. But for the students, after not being 100% sure of what kind of team this is going to be this year, the St. Louis loss kind of, you know, sent things in a different direction. Well, Tom debated it with me early in the season. Does Louisville have the same kind of cachet without Patino there, without them being a top 25 team? I still would have thought that that would have been enough hype to get people to come out. I think nationally maybe not but to our fan base you know Louisville you got Chris Mack walking the sideline now you know granted you know a lot of the students are very knowledgeable about this team they know Chris Mack they know the the impact they had on Xavier's program so that definitely added some juice his return to uh the Prudential Center 
after we had to deal with him for all those years. You know, people saw the road win at Louisville last season. They saw how big of a win that was. So I think people were hyped coming in. You know, Louisville, still a big name, despite everything that's happened. That was our first really big test of the season in the fan bases from the student perspective, I think. Now, after that, we kind of went on a really good run where we went out west. We did well at the Wooden Classic, obviously winning it. And then the games against Kentucky and Maryland. How did the hype change after those games? Oh, it was it was off the charts after the Mar- after the uh, Kentucky game, man. There were a lot of people out there. First off, from the students, a lot of people made the trip out to the Garden, and it was electric. I remember uh, just the atmosphere on campus after that game was something I hadn't really experienced in my time here. We just doing, you know, we've had some big wins, but you go to the Garden, you beat Kentucky, you take down Coach Cal, you take down a top ten team in the country. It's a different vibe. And I didn't really get the chance to. Um, feel out how the campus was with uh, after the Maryland win because we were on winter break. But social media-wise, you could never see the hype around this team building. You know, the needle was moved with that win in a sense, and the students recognized that. They recognized, hey, this is a team with big-time potential. You knock off Mar- Maryland on the road, that's huge. That's a perfect way to go into big East play. And I think uh, I think the hype definitely was there after that win, especially after the Kentucky win, and then you go on the road and beat Maryland. It was definitely there. Does it bother you that it takes that kind of victory for people to jump on the bandwagon? Do you think the players notice that as well? I think the players notice it to an extent, but at the same time, I don't think they really care because they just want people in the seats. Every single time, you know, after the game, you'd have Miles Powell, you'd have Sandra Mamokilas, really, they bring it up. They're so happy when they see the stands filled with the students and everyone else. They're so happy with the support. You know, I definitely think they notice it. Fan support picks up after a big win or two, but I don't think they really care. I think they're just happy that they're there and they're happy that they're along for the ride. You know, on a side note, what kind of presence does a team have on campus? I, I went to school a long time ago, but and it almost seemed like the team was kind of separated from everyone else. Are, are they out about? Uh, what kind of presence do they have? They're definitely out and about. You know, you see them around. They're very endearing guys. They're, there's not a single bad apple on this team. It's amazing. You know, they're all very personable people. You see them off campus. You see them on campus. They're very, you know, they're very nice kids. They're great kids. You know, they'll talk to you if you come, if you go up to them. They're not, they don't think they're above anyone just because they're basketball players. They're, they're college students. That's how they love it here. You know, that's how they, they want to feel like one of us, even though, you know, they're on a big stage. They definitely want to feel like one of us. They're just a great group of guys to be around. Yeah, they definitely endear themselves to the rest of the student body. Well, I'm not sure if they want to feel like one of us when, when they go through one of those one in five stretches <laughs> that they endure in January, right? So very true. I, I know, you know, that there is that ups and downs we talked about, and there it came. We had that January swoon that Tom likes to talk about. What was the opinion of Willard at that time amongst the fan base? It was mixed, just because you know, among the fan base here at the school, Willard. I remember when I was a freshman. This was before I was kind of on the beat covering the team. Willard used to catch a lot of heat in the student section, you know, for reasons that didn't really make a lot of sense to me, just kind of misplaced anger in terms of the way the team was playing. So, you know, after the DePaul loss, there was a there was a lot of criticism thrown his way. And people were just angry at the way the team was performing. And Willard was kind of, you know, the scapegoat for all that. People failed to understand that this was a young group that had to adjust to the rigors of Biggie's play for the first time. You know, you can say what you want about the non-conference schedule, moving the needle with all those big wins. But Biggie's play is just a different animal. And for a lot of these guys, this is their first time going through it. You know, I was kind of expecting the swoon. Maybe some students weren't after such a successful showing in the non-conference. But, uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, uncertainty. There was kind of that, you know, doom kind of move. To, you know, you drop a game to the pole. You have that rough one and five stretch. You know, you're feeling, what's this team going to become now? 
the Setonian has in the past published critical pieces of the administration, the team, etc. How difficult was it to publish pieces on the team during this stretch? Personally, I didn't really run into any problems. You know, it is what it is. It's our job to cover the team from an objective standpoint. We uh, we got to run. We got to run. If they're not playing well, we have to touch on that. We have to touch on the issues at hand. I think it's for us. It's all about not shying away from the story. You know. We got to talk about the struggles, you know, as painful as it is. We got to do what we got to do. It's the job. Now, do you get any pushback when you do critical pieces? Not really. I've never run into anything. You know, I don't, I'm sure the players read it and they're not happy if if they do. You know, it is what it is. They get it from the national media, too. It's not just us. Like I said, if they're struggling, we have to touch on it. We won't be doing our jobs if we're not. We can't just let stuff like that go by the wayside. As we all know. The team turns it around. They had another special finish. They make the fourth NCAA tournament. How does the expectations change going into next season now that the entire team is presumed to be back off of the, the way that they finished the year? I think it's Sweet 16 or bust. You know, that might be a little bit of a high expectation. But look, when you bring back a nucleus like this, bring back four starters, you bring back a handful of key reserves, you add Ico Biagu, the Florida State transfer, you add a top 100 recruit, Tyree Samuel, and you're getting Deshaun Davis from New York City. And he's one heck of a player. So I think this team has the pieces to where you could say Sweet 16 or bust. You know, I'd like to see them go out and add a piece on the grand transfer market. I think that'd be beneficial if they add in the right area. But I certainly have high expectations for this group. And I think they have high expectations for themselves. I wrote a column after the uh, Wofford loss right about how the groundwork for success next season has been laid. And I think this group is well aware of what's at hand. I think the Sweet 16 or bust attitude is the way to go moving forward. How do you compare the expectations for next year's team to what the expectations might have been or should have been for the, the senior class when they lost in the, the second round to Kansas? I think they're exactly the same minus the fact that, you know, you have four seniors as opposed to just Miles Powell and Quincy being the seniors next season. You know, a lot of people want to see that group end on the right note. They want to see Kadeen, Desi, Angel-ish, and even Mike, you know, make it to the second weekend of the tournament, finally get over that hump. And, you know, there was a sense of joy seeing them win against NC State. They finally get that elusive NCAA tournament win. And, you know, a lot of people, the general sense here was they were proud with the way they played against Kansas. But still, you want to get over that hump. And this group, you know, it's the same deal. You expect them to get over that hump. You want to see them get over the hump. You want to see Miles Powell and Q playing in the second week of the tournament next season. Is there one guy besides Miles Powell that you kind of put a little star next to and say, you know, if this guy takes the next step, I see that happening? It's got to be Miles Kale. It definitely has to be Miles Kale in the wing. You got to get more consistency out of him, I think. They'll have these games where he looks like what they expect of him. You know, he has the potential to take over a game with his athleticism, slashing to the rim, and his jump shot has really come a long way, man. It's impressive. Then there are other games where it reverts back to the old Miles Kale where his shot selection is suspect. He's just forcing things. He's not letting the game come to him. I think, you know, Miles Powell needs a legitimate number two, a consistent number two. And Miles Kale is that guy. If he steps up and fills that void, I don't think making the second weekend will be much of an issue, to be honest with you. You mentioned the grad transfer, and if it was the right piece. My opinion, that that piece is another guy to stretch the floor and shoot with consistency to penalize the other team when they want to double-team Powell. What's your take? I think it's going to be interesting in Willard, how Willard pursues the grad transfer market because early on, we've seen him reach out to a couple of guards. We saw him reach out to a kid from uh, High Point. His name's escaping me right now. And we saw him reach out to Rajon Tucker from Arkansas Little Rock. He's a 6'5 wing. So I agree with you, actually. I think they need kind of someone who can stress the floor, shoot the three. Lehigh uh, grad transfer, Pat Andre. He stands out to me. I saw him play a lot in high school. Uh, 
And I think he's a guy who could definitely stretch the floor and give them exactly what you talked about. He's a good shooter. They're also, you know, the Juco route is something they have to explore. They sent out an offer to a 2019 guy from Scotch Plains. His name's escaping me too. But he could shoot the rock. I believe he was a 40-40-90 guy at Scotch Plains this season. Actually, not Scotch Plains, South Plains in Texas. And I think they definitely need another shooter. I definitely agree with that sentiment. They need another guy who could shoot the rock consistently, space the floor, kind of, you know, give Powell a break as those double teams come as we expect they will. Now we're seeing the coaching carousel start off in, in a bang this uh, this week, and we're constantly seeing coaches change teams across country for various reasons. You know, Coach Willett is now going into his 10th year with the school. Is there any fear among the program that with the continued success that we're having that it's going to be an issue retaining them? I don't think there is, given the relationship between Willard and Pat Lyons. I think, you know, that's a great working relationship between those two. And look, Willard has said multiple times, he loves it here. He has a home in Westfield. He doesn't really want to uproot his family. So I think, Seton Hall, I don't think there's much of a worry about losing him. But at the same time, you know, as you move forward, Seton Hall is going to need to keep up with other big-time programs in terms of facilities. You know, a practice facility has been discussed for the team, and that looks like it's going to happen from all indications, but – when and where? Where is that going to be built? And how long is it going to take for that to come together? So, you know, to keep Willard away from the big-time programs, like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think it's an immediate worry, but I think some, it might become something down the road, especially if you see Willard finally advance to the second week of the tournament next season. I think that might rise his stock. But uh, I don't think Seno really needs to worry right now. Willard loves it here. This is home. He loves the program. He's built it from the ground up, essentially, after Bobby Gonzalez left. And I think right now, I think the Seno administration isn't too worried. I don't disagree. He's cleaned it up. He's got a perfect image in the eyes of the administration for what they want their coach to represent. Previously, the mess we went through with Bobby Gonzalez. But as they say, money talks. So you have Chris Holtman, yeah. who you know, went from Butler to Ohio State. Five million is a pretty big number. So if the big boys come calling, you know, I, I know we keep on upping Willard's salary and he's earned it. But as a pretty big gap between the power five football schools and what we can put on the table dollar and cents wise. Yeah, it definitely is. So that's what they're going to have to worry about. And you're going to have to see, you know, how high is Seton Hall willing to go if they're going to get in a bidding war for Willard. I think in the end, you know, Willard's the type of guy, you know, he's a big relationship guy. So he might take a little less to remain at Seton Hall if you really feel like this is the place for him. And like you said, you know, he's really, he's really endeared himself to the program. He's exactly what the administration wants. And he's learned how to recruit at Seton Hall, which is, you know, a tough thing to do. It's not easy to recruit kids to come play in South Orange. It's gonna, it is going to be tough to stave off the football schools if they come calling with, you know, big-time offers. But what it comes down to, I think, is whether or not Willard decides, does he want to be here or does he want to chase the money and go somewhere else? Now, wouldn't it be me if I didn't look at the glass half empty right now? <laughs> but there's got to be a, someone out there saying, is Willard worth $5 million for going one win in four appearances in a tournament? I don't think that's honestly a glass half empty perspective. I think that's a legitimate question. And that's something, you know, that's a thought that I ponder myself because you got, you know, winning is the name of the game. At, at what point do you know, at what point do you accept the fact that he's never advanced to the second week, weekend of the tournament? You know, how, do you really want to enter a bidding war for a coach who's never taken his team to the second weekend? That's a, that's a question that senior administration is going to have to face if someone comes calling. So let's do this. We've been kind of bringing this perspective back to the campus and the students and, you know, emotions around the team. Well, let's stick with the same topic. So one out of four, let's say they get there a couple more times and we're not making it to the Sweet 16. It's natural to want to progress and, and mm -hmm. want more and earn more what are what are the what's the take from the fans are they now sitting there going wow we, we should have been in the sweet 16 kind of stinks we're not on national television tonight playing a powerhouse like north carolina 
I don't really sense like the student body here. When I, like when we lost to Wofford, I didn't sense any blame shifting to Willard. When we lost last season to Kansas, I didn't shift. I didn't sense any blame shifting to Willard. So I think you know it's more frustration overall as a program as opposed to wow singling out Willard as the guy as the reason why they're not advancing. And you're definitely right because you know people want to people want to progress. They want to make it. They want to be in the Sweet Sixteen. They want to play for an Elite Eight. They want to make it to the Final Four. Let me rephrase and, then because John yeah. Fanta was on with us earlier and he made a comment that really got under John's uh, Tom's skin. And Tom wouldn't admit it to him while he was on the air at that time. So I, <laughs> I needled him after the fact. But John said that you know Final Four expectations, 1989. That's kind of pipe dream, not reality from a Seton Hall perspective. And we started talking about the arms race and money and facilities. Do fans feel like that's a reality? Is that what they want? To enter an arms race like that? No, no. Just just that if they don't ever make it to a Final Four, are they going to be content with not making it back to the pinnacle of the NCAA tournament? You know, that's an excellent question. I think to an extent there's a group that's just happy to, you know, be making the tournament consistent and being relevant on a national level. And at the same time, you have the group who, you know, they have those Final Four dreams and expectations. It's kind of split down the middle, I think. I, I think there's no real way to answer that, you know. The talent is here for this program to, you know, be big time and make a run. But at the same time, you know, there are certain people who have one set of expectations and there's a certain group of people who have another set of expectations. So it really depends on which side you fall on. Okay, so you said the team next year has potential Sweet 16. Yeah. What is your expectation? Make a prediction here. First one to predict it. Do I go on record and say they're going to make the Sweet 16? That's tough. I already said they're winning the Big East Championship on the last podcast, so it can't said be that bad. They're going to win the Big East Championship this year, too. Hmm. All right. You know what? I'm going to take. I'm going to go on record. I'm going to say I think they make it, but I think it comes down to the seeding. And this is something Willard mentioned right after the loss to Wofford. You can't hurt yourself with seeding during the regular season. You have to win games. You're supposed to win. You can't hurt yourself by losing to inferior opponents that aren't going to make the tournament and are frowned upon by the eyes of the committee. That's what it comes down to. If you find Seton Hall next season in a position where they're a five seed or six seed, I think you're looking at a team where they should make the Sweet 16. Then again, you know, if they struggle, if they have one of these swoons during the regular season, they're going to be seven, eight, nine range. And then, you know, that be, that comes into question again. But I think this team will figure it out. I, th- I don't think they'll hurt themselves seeding-wise. I think they'll find themselves in a good position to make the Sweet 16. And yeah, I'll say they're going to make it. I think Miles Powell in his senior year, he's looking to go out with a bang. I don't think he'd settle for anything less. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Before we let our guests go, we do a little segment called Walk the Plank. We ask you five <laughs> rapid-fire questions. We expect five rapid-fire answers. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, here we go. Who is the most engaging interview amongst the current players? Miles Powell. Sign close. <laughs> if you had the chance to go back in time and cover any single SHU basketball story, what would it be? Probably the Big East Tournament Championship game against Villanova. I would have loved to be a part of that. If you had the chance to do an exclusive one-on-one piece with any pirate coach or player, past or present, who would it be? I would love to do uh, Sheena Holloway. I think he has a great story as a program alum and now a great coach. What would be your dream job in sports journalism? Anything covering Seton Hall. <laughs> Besides the uh, Setonian coverage, which resident SHU hoops blogger do you like best? Barrett, McManus, or Carino? <laughs> Oh, man, you're making me between those guys. They're all great. Uh, I'm close with Chris, so I'll have to go with Chris. But I love Jared, man. Jared's a great guy. Tyler, you've walked a plank. Congratulations. Thank you. Tyler, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciated it. Yeah, man. No, thanks for having me. I'd love to have back on any time. 
That was Tyler Calvaruzzo, Seton Hall Sports Editor. Well, it's been a long season and we had a great time. We didn't expect to do this many podcasts, but we had a blast doing them. We'd like to thank all our guests who've helped us out this season. In addition to Tyler, we'd like to thank John Yablonski, Mike McEnany, Chris McManus, Clark Holly, John Fanta, Jason Garrett, Desi Rodriguez, Angel Delgado, and Donald Copeland for spending some time with us. We also want to thank our followers on Twitter, especially at Seton Hall Fan and at CityTim30. They retweeted all of our posts, and we're very excited to have them aboard. We have some plans for the summer, and when we get those finalized, we'll bring them out to you. But until then, we look forward to next season. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, Please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former walk-on John Yablonski, former WSOU color commentator Mike McEnany, and 1989 team manager Clark Holly. For Tom Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates.